to James chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. Let's get into it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plants. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Um, if you're not familiar with the EU, um, there are a whole bunch of staff workers that um, serve us here on campus. And just like Rowan, who's been giving the talks for the past few weeks, is a senior staff worker, so too Mike, who's going to be giving our talks, is one of the senior staff workers. So he's going to be opening up the book of James and helping to explain it to us by giving a talk. Um, and I'm just going to pray for him, asking for God's help um, as, as um, he does that. And if you'd like to join with me in praying, you can close your eyes or just do whatever helps you to focus. I'm going to pray. Please join me. Father and our God, we thank you that you are not silent, that in your kindness you have reached down into our darkness and made yourself known to us. We ask that you would speak your words through Mike clearly. We ask that you would prepare our hearts to show us more clearly who you are and what you have done so that we might live in step with who you have made us to be. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mike.
Beautiful. Okay. Uh, like Steph said, my name's Michael. Michael Klein, one of the senior staff workers here. I have a problem. One of my problems is that I love rugby and uh, I'm a bit of a rugby nut. So if you are, thank you. Who, 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 who clapped? Thank you. Beautiful. Andrew? Uh, one of the, if you're a rugby nut, one of the great things that's happening this year uh, is the British and Irish Lions Tour. Uh, now, if you know nothing about rugby, the British and Irish Lions Tour is significant because the British and Irish Lions only get together once every four years. And so the best of the best from the Northern Hemisphere, from the home nations, get together. The best of the English, Scottish, Irish and the Welsh side get together. And they only get together once every four years. But what's more, every four years they go down to the Southern Hemisphere, right? which means that for one, one lot of four years, uh, they're off to uh, New Zealand, another lot of four years, they're off to South Africa, and the third lot of four years, they come to Australia, which means it's only once every 12 years they actually come to Australia. So it's gonna be a pretty special uh, event, and it's gonna be great rugby to watch. Now, one of the captains of the uh, British Lions, uh, and he's been on three tours so far, and I'm really hopeful that he's stayed at the top at, at, the, at this level in the last 12 years, and that's a guy by the name of Brian O'Driscoll. Now, um, rugby players aren't known for their intelligence, but um, uh, in, in an interview, this is what Brian O'Driscoll said. He said, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in the fruit salad. Isn't that profound? That's fantastic, isn't it? If you learn nothing else today, that's a great thing to learn. Um, but there is a difference, isn't there? Uh, that is, you guys are some of the smartest people in Australia. You have made it to the best university in Australia, if not the world's. Uh, you're in Sydney University. You're clever people. But one of the problems with just having knowledge is that it doesn't give you wisdom. The university teaches you a lot of stuff to know, but it doesn't necessarily teach you to be wise. Uh, just over the last weekend, I picked up an article from the UK Daily Mail uh, that talked about how in the UK the 2008 Human Fertilisation Embryology Act uh, was passed and since then, in 2008, there's 155 uh, admixed embryos. What are admixed embryos? Uh, Legalised creation of a variety of hybrids, including an animal egg fertilised by a human sperm, uh, cybrids in which human nucleus is implanted into an animal cell and chimeras in which human cells are mixed with animal embryos. We can do it. Is it wise? It doesn't tell us much about ethics. And you know that in your own experience, uh, how we've made poor choices in the past, how our romantic relationships have broken up and how difficult that has been. Uh, once again, over last weekend, Miranda Devine wrote uh, an article in The Telegraph called Secrets of the uh, Hookup Culture. Secrets of the Hookup Culture. And she quotes a, a lady by the name of Donna Freitas who wrote a book called The End of Sex. How hookup culture is leaving a generation unhappy, sexually unfulfilled and confused about intimacy. Uh, she quotes, Amid the seemingly endless, endless partying, lies a thick layer of melancholy, insecurity and isolation that no one can seem to shake. College students have perfected an era of bravado about the hookup culture, though a great many of them wish for a world of romance and dating. Our lives are wrecked. We can do things, but is it wise? And you're probably sitting there thinking, you know, I've probably made some poor choices in the past. What am I going to do about it? Well, over the next three weeks, we have the pleasure of looking through the book of James, uh, a book of wisdom, really, uh, for those of you who are involved with senior small groups, that's something that we'll be doing in the senior small groups as well, looking at the book of James, probably in a bit more detail and, and to think it through a little bit more. 
today we're going to look at wisdom under pressure. James is a book of wisdom, a book that gives us God's wisdom, a perspective on God's way of seeing the world, seeing the way the world, uh, seeing the world the way God sees it. That's what wisdom's about. And over the next three weeks, as we discover James, hopefully we'll, we'll get to see the world in a completely different way. Uh, you've got a fairly comprehensive outline in front of you, uh, but let me tell you how it works. Um, uh, there's really only three points to the chalk. We've already done the first one, and I made the assertion that James is a pa- book of practical wisdom uh, about seeing the world God's way. Uh, really, the second point is about the context of this wisdom in the book of James, so you can put that on the left-hand side of the page. And the right-hand side of the page, we're going to look at what the practical wisdom that James gives us when we're under pressure. Okay? So, let's go. Uh, there's always context when you look at any book in the Bible and it's important to see the context in James as well. And the context is pressure, about trials, it's about persecution, it's about temptation. And in verse 2, what sort of trials are we talking about? We're talking about any sort of trials. Right? Verse 2, trials of many kinds. It can be big, it can be small, it doesn't matter. You know, in some senses you don't have to have the context in James because James says many trials, any trials. And whether it's standing in dog poo or, or whether it's your, your closest relative had died or something like that, it doesn't matter. James is concerned about those things. But as you discover the book and as you look into the book, you'll see that James is talking into a particular situation. And one of those situations is the conflict between riches and poverty. Uh, in the passage that was read out to us by Steph, uh, in verses 9 to 11, we were introduced to the concept So verses 9 to 11 talks about believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich, they should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall and beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Rich and poor. Now, it sounds fairly neutral here, but as you flick the pages, if you've got in front of you, just turn over the next page in chapter 2. Verses 1 to 7. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into the course? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you belong? There's favouritism that's going on. There's conflict between rich and poor. The poor are oppressed. They're always in problems. Uh, Down in verses 15 and 16, when James talks about faith, he does it in terms of the wealth issue. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him or her, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Poverty has its trials. And it's worse when there's conflict. And you'll see that at the end of chapter 4 and you'll see that at the the beginning of chapter 5 as well. There's an issue that's going on between the rich and poor, the trials that go along with it, and the conflict between them. Now, we don't have all the time to explain verses uh, 9 to 11 and we're going to do that in a couple of weeks' time in uh, in week 7. We're going to look at the issue of riches and poverty, uh, wisdom in in materialism. We're going to think about that. Another big issue is words and speech and the tongue, about grumbling and judging. Uh, So in chapter 2, verse 4, if you flick back there, it talks about discrimination. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The way that you speak, the way that you think about other people and the failure to control the tongue is probably one of the famous bits in the book of James. 
next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, the same tongue, we curse men who have, made, uh, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. It can't happen like this. Can both fresh water and salt water uh, flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Conflict, trials, is one of the key things in the book of James. It can be anything, like sickness that he talks about in chapter 5. It could be things like riches and poverty, which seems to run all its way through James. Or it could be the conflict of speech and words. But one of the things is, as you look at the issues of riches and poverty, as you look through the the, the trials of grumbling, of of the tongue and of cursing, of judgment, one of the things that you realise, especially from chapter 1, is that trials and temptations are connected together. They're actually things that are quite closely connected. You see, James is a hard book because it seems to say a lot of things all over the place. But sometimes you can see the connection in James by looking at the words and seeing the wordplay that happens. One of the wordplays that's really difficult to see is the wordplay between the word trial and temptation. You don't see it because it's a different English word, but it's actually the same Greek word. Uh, The the Greek word for trial and the Greek word for temptation is exactly the same. But we make judgments about how to translate it is that if a trial comes from the outside, an external thing, we translate that as a trial. If something that happens internally, we call it a temptation. Uh, let me read it for you and see how it goes. Okay? So let's get back um, in verse uh, 2, for example. Uh, verse 3. Uh, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So when you face trials of many kinds, that's an external thing, which is the same as verse 12. Blessed is one who perseveres under trial, external, because having stood the test, the trial, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now that word is exactly the same as what you'll get in verses 13 and 14. When tempted, when under trial, no one should say God is tempting me or trialling me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, and enticed. Then after the desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. And in some ways, I think a better translation of verse 13 is, when you experience a trial from the outside, it's related to temptation. Now, whatever else that verse says in verse 13, one of the things that says very clearly is that that temptation that happens inside doesn't come from God. God does not tempt anybody. But I think it's a little bit more complex than that because that word links things together and the external trials and the internal temptation actually link together. Have a look at it again in verse 13. It says that the evil desire within us, that's the thing that links to the temptation. That's the thing that causes temptation. And with temptation, it gives... uh, Uh, conceived, it gives birth to sin and then uh, it gives birth to death. That is, the thing that goes on is that when we get an external trial because of our evil desire it turns into a temptation. We're tempted to blame God that they're the ones who are responsible, that God is the one that's responsible, that God doesn't know the best for me. 
and then I end up sinning because I say, God, you've got no right to run my life. You, you don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. You're not God. I'm God. That's sin. And the consequence of that is death. Let me illustrate that for you. Um, I, I guess for some of us, I've been reading some blogs around the place, uh, that the issue of singleness is a big trial for, for many of us. Uh, I, I say this not glibly, but I say this because I didn't get married until I was 34. So I've uh, been through lots of broken relationships and I know how hard it is. But it actually takes an evil desire, a desire within us that caused the trial of singleness to lead to temptation that leads to sin. Uh, let me tell you uh, what I mean. So, uh, my son uh, is single. He's seven years old. Right? Uh, it's not a temptation for him to, to, to be single. You know, girls, uh, girl germs, right? Like, it just doesn't work that way for us, for him. But for some of us, when we say, God, you don't know what's best for me. I, I, I don't want to be single. And... and, and and you know what? The, the best thing for me is to be in a relationship and, and, and you're no good. You, 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 you don't know what's best for me. I, I know what's best for myself. In fact, I, I don't want your way. I, I don't want you, your ideals over me. I'm just going to sleep around with anybody. It doesn't really matter. I, I, I want someone. And that rejection of God is sin and the consequence of that is death. You see how it works? That sin leads from temptation and temptation is related to the trials. And James says, in this situation, when you're under pressure, when you're facing trials, when you're facing temptation, you need wisdom. And James says, the first thing that you need to do, going back up to verse 2, is that you need to consider these trials as pure joy. And you're sitting there thinking, that's just crazy talk. That, that's chucking an intellectual suicide, isn't it? That's emotional suicide. I'm hurting here and I'm supposed to consider this pure joy? How does it work? Yeah, look, I read the crazy dudes, you know, in Acts 5 and you read about John and Peter and they're beaten up and, 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 and they were meant to be killed and because of Gamaliel they end up being flogged instead. And what did they say? They say they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for, for the name. I'm not like that. And Paul and Silas, do you remember in Philippi, in Acts 16, they were dragged away, they were stoned, they were dragged off into prison, and, and late at night, just before the earthquake came, they started singing hymns in prison. That's crazy. Why do they take James so seriously? What makes it work for them? How do they consider it pure joy, rejoicing that they were worthy of following Jesus, that they could sing hymns? Well, the next phrase actually puts it there. And that's to God's wisdom is to remember the purpose of the trials. So verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's how you grow. That's what God does. He grows us through trials. Much like furnaces to gold, to burn off all the impurities, to get pure gold, we need that heat, we need the fire. And trials hurt and the consequence there you get in verse 4 is about maturity, about spiritual wholeness, about completeness, so that you don't lack anything. And the thing that comes through is that God loves me so much, that God loves you so much, that he doesn't want us to be incomplete. 
He loves us so much that he won't withhold anything that can bring about my wholeness, even if it means trials. Right at the end, it talks about remembering the goodness of God. Verse 16, it says, don't be deceived. And whenever you see don't be deceived, you just got to go blinkers on, blinkers off. We, we, we need to see this clearly. Every good and perfect gift, verse 17, is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind of the first fruits of all he created. Every good and perfect gift is from above. That's the grid that we need to understand the world. All goodness comes from God. And he's not capricious. He's not sometimes angry and sometimes happy. Uh, many years ago, I used to work with a doctor who, whom the secretaries hated working with because one day he was just so jolly and loving to them and buy them flowers and buy them chocolates and all sorts of stuff. And the next day, he was just in the foulest mood. And anything that you say would just tick him off and he'd get angry and nasty. God's not capricious like that, that we've got to somehow work out what his mood is towards us. God loves us. God even likes us. God loves us so much that he gave his one and only son to die for us. And he only gives us what's good. Now, friends, in many ways, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how God, although he's not responsible for evil, that he doesn't tempt us, allows temptation to happen in our lives for our testing and some of the horrible things that we go through. Now, there's no way in the short time we've got here to explain it all. That's why you need to come to ANCON, actually, the God Is Conference. You've got five days there to sit and, and ponder about God's word and, and think about God's sovereignty and, and the nature of the Trinity and how he can be sovereign and in control of the world and be absolutely good. Do come along to ANCON one of those times that unless you get this right, you're not going to get the wisdom of God. You need to see him rightly. But it is hard, isn't it? And so the big thing that James tells us is that we need to ask for it. And God is one who gives us generously. In Matthew he says, you know, even terrible fathers, when children of terrible fathers ask them for, for, for bread, they're not going to get a stone. When they ask for fish, they're not going to get a snake. And God is the one who wants to give us all things, all good things that's going to be good for us, especially wisdom, and, and he's going to give that to us generously. And so we need to pray for this wisdom. But there's a caveat. In verse 6 you see it there. But when that person asks, they must believe and not doubt, because anyone who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Anyone, they should not think that, that they will receive anything from the Lord. They're double-minded unstable in all they do. When you ask, you mustn't doubt because if you doubt, you lose everything. Now, the first difficulty about this passage, I think, is the relationship between trials and temptation. We looked at that. I think this is the next little bit difficult bit in this passage. And what does this doubt mean? Does it mean, you know, I'm not really sure whether God is there or not, so let's just give it a go anyway? I'm not really sure whether God's going to give us wisdom, so, well, we may as well give it a go. Now, I think what makes sense of the word doubt is in verse six, uh, verse 8. The doubter is the double-minded person, someone who wants God's wisdom and wants to hang on to the world's wisdom. You're double-minded. You, you want it both ways. Yes, you want God and his wisdom, but you want the world's wisdom as well. And James says you can't do that. 
that's probably the most uncomfortable position that you're going to be in. I still remember once going on a fishing trip and a friend of mine was, had one foot on the wharf and one foot on the boat. And the boat, the rope went off and the boat started separating from the wharf, right? Really uncomfortable position. You've got to make a decision which way to go. Look, you, you can jump back on the wharf, that's fine, right? To be a pagan, that's great. You can be a happy pagan if you're pagan. That, you can do that. Or you can jump on the boat and be happy on the boat. The worst pers- position to be in is one foot on each. And James says, you can't be double-minded like that. If you want to see the paradoxes of James clearly about the riches and the poor and you want to understand the wisdom of the tongue and you want to understand the wisdom that negotiates and, 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 and can get you, navigate you past the trials and wisdom of this world, trials of this world, you've got to make the jump. You can't be double-minded. And then he reminds us of the outcome. In verse 12 he says, Blessed is one who perseveres under trials. Why? Because when they have stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You're going to receive the crown of life, the object of your faith. And verse 18, right down the bottom of that passage, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give us birth, not to death this time. He, he, he gave us birth, not to sin this time. He gave us birth to life through the word of truth that we can be the first fruits. God likes us so much that he doesn't leave everything to the end. That stuff can happen to us now like a first fruits, a foretaste of what happens. Isn't that fantastic? God is so pleased with us and about this wisdom that he couldn't wait to do it all in the end. He wants to do it now, even before the end. James is a book of wisdom. The context is about trials and temptations. They're related together. The temptation is to think that God is not good. The temptation is to think that we know what's best. The temptation is to reject God and so sin, which leads to death. The wisdom that James gives us is to say, you've got to consider it pure joy. You've got to remember the purpose of those trials is to refine you, is to see you whole and complete. The wisdom that James tells us is we need to keep on thinking about the goodness of God, that we need to remember the outcome. And if you lack that, pray for it. Because what prayer is, is the verbal expression of our trust and dependence on God. It's saying, God, I'm not in control. I'm not boss. You are. And I want you to tell me what's right. I want you to show me the right way. Friends, I want to finish off with a story about uh, the chins. Richard and Pronwyn are dear friends of mine. Richard is actually the national director of the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, sort of the umbrella body of which the EU is a part of. Uh, his wife Bronwyn is a good friend of mine. We, we actually uh, did MTS together. She was sort of like the senior Howie, the, the senior trainee, when we were work, working together. Um, and they actually introduced me to my wife, so that, that uh, broke my singleness. Uh, but uh, my wife Sharon actually worked with Richard at the ECU, the Evangelical Christian Union in Wollongong. Uh, last Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, Bronwyn died after two and a half, three years of, of battling pancreatic cancer. Uh, she was diagnosed in 2009. But I reckon they're a, an incredible expression, an example of what James means by wisdom through trials. And I'm going to get Steph to read something that re- she wrote uh, last year in June. 
I thank God for the gift of cancer. I don't like being in pain. I don't like having terminal pancreatic cancer. I would like to grow old with my husband and see my kids grow up. But God appears to have a better plan. I know that he is faithful. His plans are the best and do not revolve around me. Acts 13.36 says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. And when God has done what he wants through me, I will die in his perfect timing. Why has God given me cancer? Maybe it's to make me repent of my wrongs and turn to Jesus. It's certainly done this. Maybe it is to make me talk to my friends and family about Jesus. It's certainly done this. Maybe it's for reasons way beyond my understanding. There's certainly at least this. All I know is that God has given me this gift of cancer to use for his glory. We pray daily for the cancer to miraculously go away. But if God chooses to say no, we can trust him nonetheless. It is still really hard to grasp that I'm only here for a very little while. But as the Bible teaches, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. When I was suddenly diagnosed in December 2009, it was a total shock. I had no idea that I was sick. My life at that time involved being a busy wife, a mother of four active children aged 9, 12, 14 and 15 and a part-time general practitioner. Widespread pancreatic cancer has a very bad reputation and my oncologist originally gave me a prognosis of three to six months to live. However, God has had other ideas and my cancer has partially responded to chemotherapy. For the last two and a half years, I've received chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery and lived with ill health, knowing that I have a time bomb inside. My family have become experts at coping with me regularly vomiting and being bedbound at times from the different treatments. As the cancer keeps spreading throughout my body, I am very aware that Jesus is my Lord and Saviour in whom I can depend and that all other ground is sinking sand. I am so grateful to God for everything. I'm thankful for who God is, his majesty, his splendour, and his promises. I'm thankful for my family, friends, and life. I'm so thankful to God for the resurrection of Jesus, which means I will have victory over death and don't need to fear pain or the dying process. It is such a comfort to read, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death 
is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he, give us, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As I get sicker and spend a lot of time lying down in pain, I sometimes wonder what use I am to God and what he wants me to do now. I miss being able to do things. I actually miss physically being able to tidy up. And I miss the joy of serving my husband and kids more. What is hard is coping with chronic pain and deteriorating health while still navigating the physical and emotional challenges involved with four children and a busy husband. Another challenge is not knowing. It's impossible to plan. Last year I had five hospital admissions. I have no idea what condition I will be in six weeks, let alone whether I will even be alive. However, I am just so thankful for God's guidance in the Bible. The Bible is so clear about what God wants me to do now, even as I get sicker. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God is so clear. This is what God wants me to do now. Thank him. As I write, I have just returned from a visit to my oncologist. He's urging us to not receive any more chemotherapy or other treatment out of compassion because in his view it only has a 10% chance of treating the cancer and it will greatly erode the quality of life that I currently enjoy. It's hard to stop and to have no treatment. It feels like giving up. But I still know that I can thank God. Leaving my husband and four gorgeous children grieves me greatly and makes me cry every time I think about it, even as I write now. However, I know God will take care of them. Please pray that each of them will continue to trust God into eternity. So I thank God for this gift of cancer because he is good and he is using it for his purposes. The plans of the Lord are perfect even if I don't know the reasons for everything. All I know is that soon I will be with the Lord forever because Jesus alone has saved me through his death and resurrection. I hope to see you all there. 1,200 people turned up last weekend for the memorial service for this remarkable woman who understood something about God's wisdom. I want wisdom like that. Don't you? I want that kind of wisdom in life. And when trials and temptations come, I want to be able to hang on. And so James reminds us, consider. That's the key word. The temptations come and we'll be tempted to lose perspective on life. The temptations is to be so swallowed up by the trial itself the temptation is to be so caught up in your own sinful way of thinking that you allow the trial to entice you into sin, blaming God for your situation, rejecting him. And what we've got to be doing is ask God for wisdom, to be single-minded, to see it his way, 
to understand the situation, to ask for his wisdom, to understand that God is at work in our good to produce strong and robust Christians, to keep us persevering until the end, to receive the crown of life that God has promised to give to those who love him. You want that wisdom? Pray for it. Consider it. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have made yourself clear that you're a God who only gives us what's good, Father, that you are God who looks after us and wants to see us complete in the end. And in the midst of trials, help us to consider and have the right perspective. And Father, we do pray for the Chins, especially as Bronwyn's gone, that you'd help Richard look after his family and keep them knowing, loving and serving you.